0: of the incestuous man uh, inside the church and their failure to judge him. In this next passage, he's turning his attention to the scandalous case of Christians suing one another outside the church um, and their failure to judge things appropriately there. So let's look at what uh, Paul has to say here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, the reading of God's Word. When one of you has has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers, your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word. You broach a sensitive subject here for many, Lord. For all of us, uh, I can almost say with certainty, and and so Lord, I just pray that uh, you would help us by your Holy Spirit to hear your counsel, your direction, and that you would encourage us by it and direct us by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Paul is talking about Christians in conflict. And um, so how was your last week? Uh, Have you ever felt the weight of conflict with another Christian? And I I think, I mean, really, with almost certainty, all of us could raise our hand. And we could remember it. We could tell stories. Conflict is one of the most stress-inducing, anxiety-producing perhaps aggravating and certainly painful experiences that we can have. There are rare few that seem to revel in combative confrontation, but for most of us, this is the stuff that we dread. It keeps us up at night. It makes us think about leaving our churches, leaving our jobs, our marriages, and the stats prove it. Every single study I've ever seen on why people get divorced, divorced lists conflict in the top five, and it's no different in the church. It is very frequently listed as as one of the top reasons that members leave their churches. There was a recent study on pastors, why they leave the ministry early. The second most common reason was conflict in the church. Well, this is some of what is at issue in Corinth as well, but they're not handling it very well, sort of as normal. And so let's first get a handle on what's going on, and then second, Paul's corrective counsel, and third, where that counsel comes from. Let's look at these in turn. First, what is going on? Verse 1 says, Paul says, Paul says when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so the basic situation is this, there are some Christians in Corinth that are taking one another to court, secular court, and they're suing one another. But there's a bit more that we should understand. Firstly, their disputes are not over matters of life and death, or what we might call today criminal matters, but what we might call instead civil matters. Paul makes this point clear in a number of ways. In verse 1 he calls them grievances, verse 2 trivial cases, and verse 3 matters pertaining to this life. And so what exactly falls under this category? Multiple commentators on the historical context include things like um, the legal possession of property, breaches of contract, cases of financial damage or fraud— wrongful personal injury, and the like or less. And that means that what is at issue in these cases isn't small stuff. I'm sure none of you are excited about being defrauded financially. But it's also not capital stuff. Instead of criminal offenses like murder or child abuse, Paul is addressing disputes that relate primarily to matters of money or honor. We can all relate with that. It means that what's at issue here are the lesser offenses that really comprise 99% of the conflicts that we find ourselves in with other Christians. Secondly, the secular court system in Paul's day is significantly different than ours is today. It was not constrained by our modern ideals that justice is blind, that it's fair that all people have certain equal and inalienable rights, that you're innocent until proven guilty. But instead, as one commentator explains, the ancient Roman courts could not be relied upon to administer justice impartially. They were open to bribes and were partial to the status and power of the prosecutor or defendant or both. Listen to this. In fact, the principal criterion of legal privilege in the eyes of the Romans was something called dignitas, or honor, derived from power, style of life, and wealth. In other words, not fairness is what what tips the balance of the scales of justice, but power, wealth. That's what tips the scales of justice, and furthermore, going to court was very expensive and beyond the reach of most people, and therefore, in practice, the Roman legal system was controlled by the upper class, and it reinforced the distinctions between the classes. So that means the Roman justice system, in a word, is unjust. And so thirdly, Paul says, how dare you? that they would even consider taking a brother to a secular court instead of working it out in the church it should be unthinkable in Paul's mind the only right place for Christians to address grievances against Christians is in the church and so point to why Paul's counsel Paul's first counsel is to recognize the aptitude of the saints in verse 2 through 3 Paul says or do you not know that the saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so the question then, why? Why take a brother to court outside the church? Well, from the Corinthian perspective, and maybe you can identify with this, because the secular court is better able, more competent, to judge your affairs than the church is. But from Paul's perspective, it shouldn't be possible for us to think this way. Because in the perfect wisdom of God, God has equipped and destined his saints to judge matters of such cosmic significance as the world and angels. And so, how can they possibly fail to have the necessary competence to weigh matters of this incomparably lighter scale? And so, if you're looking for who is, who is best able, who's most competent to judge your affairs, the Supreme Court, okay, then look no further than the church. That's what Paul's saying. And so, he continues verse 5 through 6. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. In other words, are you blind? Are you you completely not able to see the aptitude of the saints? Everyone around you is qualified, and yet you can't see it. So instead you invent your better solution to sue one another and that before an audience of unbelievers. It's like when Proverbs says, even even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Well, the Corinthians, they've they've removed all doubt of who they are. Paul's second piece of counsel is that their lawsuits before unbelievers are to the shame of themselves and the church. But he's not done. In verse 7, Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, we read that, just like, did he really say that? It it sounds alarming. Or or else it's just extraordinarily hard counsel. Is Paul suggesting here that, that we should just ignore our offenses? Well, not at all. This whole passage is bursting with judgment language for inside the church. And at the end of the last passage, in chapter 5, he told us specifically that we're, we have a calling to judge those inside the church. And so Paul isn't saying don't judge, ignore your conflicts, but rather that lawsuits are too far. That's the third piece of counsel here. Despite the intensity of their conflicts, there should be a line that Christians won't cross. For Paul, taking a brother to court is is. Is definitely over that line, and perhaps that's intuitive to you as well. But but the scene on the ground in Corinth, I mean, it just makes it that much clearer, and it sheds some light on on why would anyone take someone to court. Remember again, the ancient court system wasn't fair. It was expensive. It was ruled by the elite. But its proceedings, this apparently was a sight to see. They were extraordinarily destructive. One commentator describes them this way. He says, "...with reputation on the line, the courts were awash with personal enmity. The proceedings were not conducted dispassionately by the parties, i.e. with respect and civility, but with great acrimony or animosity, hatred, malice." Advocates were not expected to show any restraint at all. In fact, the advocate was permitted to use the most unbridled language, the most unbridled language, like cussing, cursing your advocate about his client's adversary or even his friends, his relations, or his witnesses. It's a cesspool. It's a cesspool. The court was the place where young orators learned to play the crowds of onlookers with colorful character assassination. In other words, the ancient court was like this verbal gladiator match with no rules. It was a public spectacle, small part law, large part entertainment. It was something like an old episode of the Jerry Springer Show, if you happen to remember that. So you can even... If that's the case, can you even imagine taking a Christian to that kind of court? And I hope not, but what Paul's getting at is that it may not have been plan A for the Corinthians either. Lawsuits, much like divorce, isn't where any of us normally start. They're a result of continued escalation after all our plans A, B, C, and whatever have failed. Furthermore, By the time you get to the point of suing your brother, you're no longer working through an issue. But things have escalated to a place of all-out war. It's akin to our, our, our congressional politics going on right now. The issue around which it started is now a distant secondary concern. What's most important, what is the holy grail, is that we get full restitution for what was done to us. Unconditional surrender is the only option as a solution. We want the offender to feel the full extent of what we felt. We want punishment. We want revenge. And we want to see it done personally because it is absolutely and deeply personal. And so, as Paul says, again, to have lawsuits is already a defeat for you. Brothers and sisters are going to offend one another. It's a simple fact of sinners living in a fallen world. But there needs to be a ceiling There needs to be a ceiling on how far we'll go with those offenses. We can work things through a long way and for a long time, and we should, and we should be patient with that, but we can't let things escalate anywhere near this far. And it's for this reason that Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? So why? Well, because your relationship with one another is more important than the issue that's the fourth piece of counsel here. If it's a decision between the relationship and reaching a full, fair resolution on an issue, Paul says, choose the relationship. Suffer wrong. As he explains here, though, the Corinthians have not, Instead, he says, verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And so at the end of the day, the most important thing, what, what, what takes the cake, what will drive you, is you and your stuff. Relationships, even with your brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't worth the cost of your civil grievances. And so, point three, where does all this come from? Well, firstly, as Paul has just exclaimed here at the end of verse eight, but also in verse five and six, we are brothers By virtue of our being bound to Christ, we are necessarily bound to one another. And for Paul, that means that we are family. That's why lawsuits between Christians are such an abominable thing. They should be an abominable thing. Just think about what two brothers suing one another would say about their relationship. It's not a unique thing. We've seen it in the world around us. It continues to happen. It would say, these two really, really hate one another. It'd say, this stuff is more important than than them. It'd say, that's a seriously dysfunctional family. And the reason is because there's something hardwired in all of us that tells us how family members are supposed to relate with one another. Well, Paul's saying that that hardwiring that's deep in all of us, that's natural to us, we've got an intuition and an instinct about, it's supposed to function in our church family as well. His problem is that for the Corinthians, it's not. In their lawsuits, they look like people that hate each other, and they might very well hate each other. It's making the church look like a dysfunctional family. That's only a part of why this is so tragic, because you see, the church isn't just like any other family. In verse 9 through 11, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, adulterers, etc., will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, in other words, there are two people groups on the planet. Those outside, who are the guilty and unrighteous of the world, who are excluded and non-heirs of the kingdom of God, and those that are inside, those who have been washed, sanctified and justified in Christ through the Spirit, adopted into the family of God, and heirs of the uh, together of the kingdom of God. And we were all of the former, but now as Christians we belong to the latter. That's the sense of the overly redundant Greek in verse 11. David Noe will like this. The word translated but is one of the strongest adversatives in the Greek language, and Paul uses it a lot here. It's so awkward, in fact, that The English translations most don't translate it, because it literally reads, but you were washed. No transition. But you were sanctified. No transition. But you were justified. It's like this jackhammer on the point that you are no longer of those people, but as Christians, you have been born again into his people. And that means our brothers and sisters in the church are now together with us, members of the most important, powerful, and wealthy family, period. We are heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. I just want to let that hit you for a minute. We are heirs together with Christ of the kingdom of God. The idea of kingdom connotes authority, responsibility, boundaries, Jurisdiction, and therefore, if you're a citizen of one and not the other, you can't cross back over to the other for justice. It would be like trying to contest an American traffic ticket in Canada. That's why Paul says, verse 4, why do you lay them your grievances before those who have no standing in the church? The point is, they don't have jurisdiction over your affairs, but even worse, as Paul stated in verse 2, you're going to have jurisdiction over them and theirs. You're the ones that are going to judge the world. And therefore, you're taking your brother to their court is like taking your case to a foreign court and a lower court. It's a violation of the church's jurisdiction, and it's flipping the judicial hierarchy on its head. And so it just doesn't make any sense. And the same is true with respect to our being heirs. Heir connotes wealth, power, position. And in the case here, of a kind which nothing higher or more could ever be added. It is the ultimate. We are heirs of the ultimate and eternal kingdom of God. And so why then do we fret? Why do we fret so much over things that are so infinitesimally smaller relative to what we possess in Christ. It's like a billionaire fretting over spilt milk. You'd look at something like that, and you'd be like, something wrong with you? There's something wrong with us. And that's why Paul is so flabbergasted at the Corinthians' actions. It's not to say that the matters of this life don't matter, just uniformly ignore your grievances, but, but that we need to get a right perspective on them. Misplaced honor Favoritism, financial damages are serious things, but they're not ultimate things. They're not life and death things, and we need to be careful about acting as if they were, and we do act as if they were. We are incomprehensibly and irreducibly, irreducibly rich in Christ, and that reality should sober how we think about what's really at stake in our disputes. It means that we actually can afford... To be defrauded we can afford to be wronged lastly we need to remember exactly how it is that we have come into this most privileged of all positions you see the reason we are heirs is because christ suffered for the wrongs the offenses that we and all of our brothers and sisters deserved It's why each verb at the end of verse 11 is in the passive voice. Our being cleansed of all the guilt and shame for our sins, our being set apart to walk in faithfulness, and our being declared righteous and put in right relation to God is not a result of anything that we have done or could do, but solely because of what God in love has done for us. That is the sweet good news here, and at the same time, it confronts us with the challenging hypocrisy of the Corinthians. You see, what God in Christ through the Spirit was willing and has already so mercifully and graciously applied to them, they have been unwilling to apply to one another. That's where the shock in Paul's rebuke is coming from, and it should shock us too. And so what do we take away from this? Well, we might not be suing our brothers and sisters in court, and I hope not. And our court might not be as depraved as theirs, but the underlying motives and attitudes that drove the Corinthians to do so, those are all very much and still at work today and in us. In the face of our perceived offense, our brothers and sisters can quickly transform into our enemies. And we, in turn, can quickly get to work on building a massive campaign to go to war against them. And while we might not do so with quite the public spectacle that the Corinthians did, with the flair, our guerrilla-style warfare can be just as vindictive and destructive. Instead of public lawsuits, we prefer grudges. We prefer bitterness and gossip, passive-aggressive behavior, abusive or oppressive control tactics. And we engage in it with everything available to us all the modern weapons at our disposal. We don't just use sharp words in private, but we sometimes Twitter and Facebook up a storm our hateful pageantry for all to see. And so it's no wonder that the church has gained a reputation for hypocrisy and a culture of judgmentalism. The ground for that reputation might be overstated, but we who are in the church, we who are in the church also know that sometimes the church is not a very safe place. We don't do conflict very well. And something we need to take from Paul's rebuke here is that that is not okay. Just like the Corinthians, we need to grow here, and we must grow here. And so how do we do that? Well, part of the reason we don't do conflict well is because we don't get what we have and who we are in Christ. We don't get what we have and who we are in Christ. That's what we need to take away. The recurring refrain in this passage is don't you know? Paul's used this sparingly before to highlight his main point, but here it's like he he backs up the dump truck and just unloads the whole thing. In just 11 verses there are 10 of these kinds of questions. The whole passage is peppered with these questions and the reason Conflict is so painful and hard for us. Why we do it so badly is because, well, we forget. We forget or we don't realize what Christ has done for us and our brother. And so we desperately need to get it. We've got to wrap our mind around it. We need to get it more and deeper. It's the secret to doing conflict better. It's how you begin to see and feel what Paul does. It's how the Corinthians lawsuits and our own sinister approaches to conflict become unthinkable. It's like that paradigm shift in the parable of the unforgiving servant. See, in our conflicts, we're acting like the unforgiving servant. We've forgotten or we don't realize what the Lord has done and who we are in Christ. All that stands before us is is the offense and the offender. It's all there is in the world. But you see, as Christians, something else happened first, and it continues on afterwards. When we stood before the king with insurmountable debt and offenses far beyond what any court could weigh, our Lord chose to show us mercy, and he showed us that mercy at his own expense. It's the grand miracle of the gospel, and that should change things for us. It's the point of Paul's but in triplicate. We are no longer what we were before, and therefore we can't relate to others, and especially Christians like we did before. If God has exercised a love so boundless towards us, how can we possibly withhold what amounts to so much less from our brother who has likewise been loved and forgiven by the same God? To the degree that we do, we are denying who we are and what we have in Christ. And so, is the gospel having its effect on you? That's the question for you. You see, as it does, the kind of vindictive hatred toward our brother that the Corinthians were showing towards one another should become increasingly unthinkable. And yet, that's not all that he has here for us. You see, Paul's not just saying, don't do that anymore, though he is saying, don't do that anymore. Here's the line, don't cross it. But he's also teaching us how to do conflict the right way. Remember, the lawsuit approach to conflict is about getting ours and punishing them. But when we realize that in the providence of God, these folks sitting next to us aren't our enemies but our brothers and sisters where there's weight on that title, that office, that position, brother and sister, who have been washed, sanctified, and justified just like us, who are heirs of the kingdom of God with us, then a bond of genuine love will rightly form between us that is even stronger than the strongest bond we have with a blood relative. And as a result, instead of conflict centering on us, just me and them, it will center on Christ. We will become ministers of Christ in our conflict. Instead of it being about our losing something to them or getting something from them, it will be about growing with them in Christ. And instead of it springing from out of a personal hatred and anger, it will spring out of a love and empathy from Christ, and so let's remember who we and our brothers and sisters are and what we have in Christ. Let's remember that Christ loved us so much in our conflict with him that he sacrificed his own life to bring about our reconciliation. And as we remember these things, how we see conflict will change. It will still be painful, at least sometimes, but instead of dread and war and division, it will become a hopeful opportunity a hopeful opportunity for increasing understanding and unity. And instead of hate and retribution, it will become an opportunity to show respect and grace and love. And so, do you want to have conflict like that? I do. I hope you do too. And that's the power that we have in Christ. And so let's strive to understand more and more who we are and what we have in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we confess to you tonight that we do not do conflict well. We have hurt ourselves. We have hurt our brothers and sisters. We have shamed the name of Christ and your church. And it's because, Lord, we you have been excluded from our vision. It has been about us and our offense and getting ours. And so we pray, Lord, that you would infuse in us tonight the truth, the reality of all that we are and all that we have in Christ, and that that would radically fill our vision and shape our vision so that we see our brothers and sisters as likewise loved by christ forgiven in christ members of our family our real brothers and sisters help us to love one another lord and make us united may change conflict from from a war lord to an opportunity to be bound together more tightly to grow and be sanctified to be conformed increasingly into the image of christ please do this work we pray in jesus name amen